This is Alopecia Life with your host, Deanne Graham. You'll hear interviews with specialists in their field and parents who are helping their child move through life while living with alopecia areata, along with conversations with alopecia rock stars who are making a difference. Alopecia Life is here to provide you with support, accurate information, inspiring stories, and life hacks to help you navigate the world of hair loss. Whether you've just been diagnosed or have had it for ages, Alopecia Life has been created to share all the information you may want or need to do alopecia your way. Thank you for sharing your time with me and guest Teresa Youngkin today on Alopecia Life. I met Teresa at a conference last year. We were talking about healthcare reform and what she does, and I was super impressed. What started out as personal advocacy for her family has led to something more expansive around healthcare. Teresa is super excited about the Health Information Exchange, and she shares more about that with us today, too, along with how to ask for what we want to make the most of our doctor's appointments. Her life mission is to leave the healthcare industry in a better way than she found it, and she's certainly succeeding. Teresa, welcome to Alopecia Life today. Hi. How are you, Deanna? Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm super excited to have you. And just kind of for a little background, Teresa and I met, you and I met, I should say, (laughs) back in October at She Podcasts in Arizona. And we just had a connection right away. Um, We were really aligned with our kind of our values and the way that we um, look at healthcare. And I was really excited that you wanted to be on the podcast and to share your experience with listeners. And if you could give a little background about yourself, just Mm -hmm. your personal story, and then we'll kind of go from there. All right. Well, again, thank you for having me here. I am just so excited. And I guess this excitement and passion comes from my own journey in the healthcare system. Uh, My late husband. So that gives you clue number one, what what sort of journey that I had. He was diagnosed with primary brain cancer at the age of 31 and he passed away at the age of 36. And we had five years of trying to understand the healthcare system and trying to live out a life that was purposeful in this very crazy world and of, of medicine. And through that, I learned some very valuable lessons. And the first one is, is, you know, you start making decisions about, do you want quantity of life or quality of life? Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? And then how do you partner with your healthcare provider to get what you want out of that journey, not necessarily what they want? And I know for us, it was five years of knowing and learning. And out of that, I actually got involved in healthcare. I didn't work in healthcare prior to that. And I came to it with a passion to want to make a change. And I have since then been involved. I started off as a patient and um, caregiver advocate. And from there, really got involved with the technology side of it and have been working in healthcare IT for the last, gosh, 14, nope, 15 years. So it has been quite a journey. And I have gotten to learn the healthcare, the whole healthcare ecosystem from being a patient to working with providers and setting up their technology and understanding how they run through their day to working on the insurance side. And then lastly, working to transmit medical information back and forth between provider organizations when it's 
super, super hard. Everybody would think that getting a, you know, when your doctor types something into that computer, he can just package it up and send it somewhere. And unfortunately, that's not what happens. So I'm sure that your audience has experienced that and said, you've got a computer, why am I still carrying records? Right. So um, working to solve that problem in healthcare. That's awesome. I'm loving this well-rounded approach, right? I mean, starting as a patient and and advocating for your husband and advocating for yourself and your family, really saying, how is this quality of life going to be? And having to convey that to physicians is kind of a, a big deal. I know you and I were talking about that earlier. How do you, I guess, step one, how do you advocate for yourself when you go in with, with a diagnosis of any kind, right? Yeah. So I know that we've all done this, right? Like we go and we Google it because Mm -hmm. we do have information at our fingertips. And then we go in and many times your provider is not very excited that you've done that. Mm -hmm. And what I can say is, is make sure that you're educated Mm -hmm. and you go in there and you can speak their language. If you don't understand something, ask them what this means. Come at it from a point of view that I wanted to know because it's my body my Mm -hmm. world or my child's body. And I want to better understand this. Can you help me to do that? Mm -hmm. Even if it's printing it off and taking it with you and saying, this is what I read. Can you help me? Like, how does this relate to who I am or where I am or, you know, to my diagnosis right now? Right. And my health condition right now. Can you help me to understand that and make it a partnering collaborative relationship? Right. Um, Yeah. Because ultimately, they mm-hmm. are there to help. They do want to help. We know that. And and exactly. oftentimes I think, you know, when you take it all together, right? The insurance companies, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> but but that is a limitation, right? I mean, because on average, let's just talk about maybe a normal kind of play of what happens when you get diagnosed with alopecia. So you find a spot, let's just say, and then you can start to Google and you discover that it might be alopecia. You make an appointment with your primary care provider mm-hmm. and then you go and they say, well, it's alopecia areata. And they say, well, now you got to go to a dermatologist, right? And, mm-hmm. and, but in between that time, you're thinking, Hey, maybe I should get some blood work, right. To confirm mm-hmm. this or see if there's any um, deficiencies that I'm having. And, and oftentimes we, we do know that they're I can't say always, but times I hear there's vitamin D deficiencies and iron deficiencies with people with alopecia, but a lot of autoimmune diseases too. Sometimes we can't even get the blood work requested for us, right? They go, oh no, you know, you don't need to do that. And we'll just go to the dermatologist and then they'll give you probably a cream or a steroid injection or whatever it might be. And so, so mm-hmm. now you're already, you know, three steps down and you're having to advocate for yourself even more saying, well, why didn't I get that here? And now we're now at step three, having to talk about medications. And I've already waited like, let's say 45 days to get to the see a dermatologist, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So there, there are great deficiencies in the healthcare system. And I will, I will definitely say that. One of the things that you can do is if you feel that you need to have some sort of blood work done, is is that you can call in and ask to talk to a mid-level. So that would be a PA or a nurse practitioner and explain to them because they're the ones that have more time on their hands and can actually sit down and speak with you. And it is a pain. There's 
unfortunately, no one great way to to fix it. And it depends on your health system. It depends on your insurance and it depends on your provider, the the doctor that you see. And there is, it's a well-recognized fact that there are a lot of specialties who have 45 day waits to get Mm -hmm. patients in to see them. You might want to tell your primary care provider, you know, I know that vitamin D deficiency, or these are normal routine tests that I may need. Mm-hmm. Could you please look at them and see if if you can order them for me ahead of time? Or maybe could you call the dermatologist and ask the dermatologist mm-hmm. if this is what they want to see? Because more so than not, and especially with autoimmune, what happens is, is you know, your primary care says the specialist is going to take care of it. And the specialist says, well, why didn't your PCB exactly. order this? Exactly. So you can advocate for yourself and say, you know, I know, or I have a friend who can always get that imaginary friend or, you know, (laughs) (laughs) who also has this disease. This is most common, you know, Mm -hmm. it it may be founded out in a patient support group, right? Right. You know, that this is something that may happen. And all I want to do is to be as efficient as possible Mm -hmm. with my care and my health. Right. Because it comes at a cost. Oh, yeah, definitely. And one thing that comes up too, we're talking about that time constraint, Mm -hmm. right? And I've been told, you know, you're getting maybe between seven to 12 minutes with your provider if they have a scribe, right? And so that, and if they don't have a scribe, then they're, you know, typing away on their computer (laughs) and they're halfway paying attention because we know how that all works. Yep. And then they're relying on their notes. And oftentimes the appointment won't follow-up appointment will come and they'll say, well, this is what we discussed last time. You're like, actually, we didn't talk about that or, you know, something just kind of nutty comes up. So I think we talked about efficiency really well. How can we make the most of our time, you know, our seven to 12 minutes, right? And is that the same for dermatology, you know, specialists, or do you usually get a little bit longer with dermatologists and specialties? It depends. It depends on on actually on their operations procedures. So mm-hmm. usually for your first appointment, you'll get 45 minutes mm-hmm. and that's to level set and mm-hmm. for you to start getting a game plan together. But one thing that you can do when you go in is to be prepared. If you're a pro at this, you know that it's going to run a certain way, right? They're going to do their examination. They're going to ask you some questions, what's different from the last time. Mm-hmm. Are you on the same medications? You know, have you had any side effects? So be prepared to answer those questions when you get there. If you've had any additional medications that you're on, also Mm -hmm. let them know that as well. You can also, uh, as I said before, instead of seeing a physician themselves, you can also see a nurse practitioner or physician's assistant. Mm -hmm. In some states, they're licensed to practice just like an MD. So Mm -hmm. that is one way to get a little bit more time. They generally have more time booked in their schedule. So their appointment Mm -hmm. slots are longer. Mm-hmm. than an MD. And if they have any questions, they will go to the physician, to the physician MD and ask them Okay, um, if anything is there. But like I said, coming in with a game plan, if you know that there is something that you want to discuss, write it down. I would say this over and over and over again, write it down and take it with a piece of paper. And if mm-hmm. the conversation gets off track, you can go back to it and you don't feel so surprised. Mm-hmm. When you get to the end of that seven minutes and you're like, I didn't get to talk about what I wanted to talk about. So um, you can start off the visit saying, I brought a list of questions. So I want to make sure that I get answers before I go. 
Yeah. That expectations. Well, what happens though, if you get to the end of the visit and you're like, well, you know, I've still got these three really important (laughs) things to cover and I'm not, why should I wait another 60 days to get the answers? Right. I've already been here and, and can you leave them with them? Or do you say, you know, can this be done with a follow-up phone call or what, what's usually, is that usually what happens or what can happen? It can happen. Yes. You can say, you know, I still have a couple of questions I need to have answered. Could you call me back or could you send me a message in the patient portal? Mm. You know, if you've got something, if you've got some education, I'd be more than happy to take it. If you have something for me to read, could you please give it to me? Mm -hmm. Hospitals spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on education, really nice education. And it's not utilized as much as it should be. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of education, I mm-hmm. hear, I would say probably 80% of the time, and that's that's my own experience with talking to people in support groups and things like that, that at those first appointments, people are not being provided with those resources. They're not being told, oh, you know, here's these books, here's these websites, here's these nonprofits. And why is that happening, I guess. Why are, Why is it more about like, I know Big Pharma has a big reach in this, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I was told even by, actually, let's get to that later. Um, <laughs> I'll talk about that later. But okay. but yeah, so, so why is it that these very basic resources, something that, that could really make a huge amount of difference aren't being just given freely or, you know, they're not being emailed or they're not just there's not a pamphlet or something like that. Yeah. A lot of times it's just not something that, that people think about. Well, I don't know. I'm not a physician. I can't say, Mm -hmm. but what I can say is, is that there are, there is so much education out there. Make sure that you ask for it. Even Mm -hmm. if you don't know, just say, is there something I can take home? Even if it's at your first appointment that I could understand this better. Is there a website that you can send me to? Mm -hmm. What one question that I would ask is what society or what patient support services do you have available to me around this particular condition? And that will key them in. It's all about the language. Sometimes it's asking them in a way that they understand what it means. So if you could provide me with education on this, I would appreciate it. A lot of times you just assume that that that's what you're going to get. And unfortunately, you do have to ask. Right. Many right. times. The other thing that you can do is you can go into your local hospital. There are medical librarians that are there that are there to help you. You can ask just like a library. It's a medical library. And you can go in and ask them to help you find information, like good evidence-based information to help you. That's awesome. Yeah. I I don't think the average person would know that. I don't, I know that, you know, Seattle Children's has a resource library and I know that my book is there. So I kind of, we have that relationship. It wasn't an extensive library when I was there, but yeah, having a larger, it's more of a database than is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. They have an educational database. These are medical librarians. There is a, there is a specialty just like a librarian. So they can research different networks and find different things. And you can ask them questions and they can help you research what you want. Yes. Awesome. I'm so excited. I did not know that. (laughs) Yes. Very cool. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. So let's talk a little bit about 
patient portals. You talked about that. You mentioned <laughs> that. And, yes. and I will kind of just give you an example. Today, I was talking to a good friend of mine and mm-hmm. she is seeing a naturopath and she's just explaining all the things that she went through. And she said, well, you know, let's figure out how to get all the information about your lab work from five years ago or what happened two years ago, and then we'll mm-hmm. put it all together. And it's a headache at this point, right? Because you yes. you have you might have somebody who has something like patient fusion, and then you have my chart, and then you've got this and that. So part of what you do is you kind of, I think if what I understand of what you do is you have created maybe or are looking to create some type of hub so that all of that information is accessible to physicians and to patients at one place. Is that right? Yes. So it's called a health information exchange. So what that is, is that your health system or whoever you get your healthcare through is a part of a larger network where you have a unique identifier. So it would be like DN123. Mm-hmm. And all your medical records are associated with DN123. And this health information exchange is like a, it's like an information superhighway. I know old school words here, mm-hmm. but you can, um, your particular facility can shoot out to this uh, health information exchange and say, hey, and it's got off ramps to all these different other hospitals and say, hey, does anybody have information for DN123? And anybody who does, they go up and they kind of like ping on the door and anybody who does returns it back to them so that they can get it all in one place. I will tell you a super interesting secret. I don't know if you know, but like health insurers and healthcare systems, even if they are the same company. So let's say we call those integrated delivery networks where you have a health plan and healthcare providers that are under the same roof. They are Mm -hmm. two different entities. So um, they can't share certain information. So your health plan can have medical records, especially if you've got pre-authorizations. Let's say you're taking an immunosuppressant or a biologic for a condition that you that you have. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm sorry and I meant to look it up and I didn't. If alopecia, I know it's autoimmune, so you mm-hmm. may be taking some sort of immunosuppressant. Mm-hmm. Some of those need prior authorizations. Right. To get those prior authorizations, medical records have to be sent to the health plan for them to approve it. And the health plan actually has your medical records. Mm-hmm. And there was a law that just came into effect this January 1, 2022. So it just came into effect that you can go to your health insurance provider and ask them to collect records from your previous health plan, not provider, but from your health plan, if you've got records there. Mm -hmm. This is important because when you switch health plans, sometimes your benefits, especially if your benefits are maybe assisted by the state Mm -hmm. or somehow other funded in a different way, you may be using up, you know, benefits from before they'll count those against your new benefits. So what you can do is to ask your current health plan to get your medical records from your past health plan. And they have to do it now before they didn't have to do it. And they didn't have to share because they don't have the same rules as your hospital system. As of the first of this year, you have to. So you can ask them for five years back to move your records from one health plan to another health plan. And that's one way. And then you can ask them for your records and they, they have to provide them to you. So I know you should see my notes right now. (laughs) I'm like all over the place. Okay. Sorry. 
No, that's okay. So I just want to make sure I'm clarifying for listeners sure. so that that we all are on the same page. So with the health information exchange, mm-hmm. that's where it all will be. But how do you actually, do you have to put all your information in there as, as a consumer or as a patient, let's call ourselves? Um, how does that, how does that start? And then I see where the arms go, right? I mean, we're yep. still in charge of having to ask the health plan and the providers to mm-hmm. or the health plan, really, right? It's not really each provider because the health plan will reach the providers. Well, no, your healthcare providers too. They have to, they have to provide you with that information as well. Okay. So I know this is <laughs> there. It, it's a lot and it's so complicated. So let's talk about uh, the health plan piece. I'm very excited about because this has never happened before in history. So like, I'm yeah. thrilled because a lot of people don't know that your health plan actually does have your medical records mm-hmm. and switching. Like if you change your job, you know, you have to kind of go through, sometimes you have to go through all new authorizations and mm-hmm. and all new authorizations. And sometimes, you know, you have to figure out like how much of your benefit did you use up and do you have any left depending right. on what it is. So for me, having that automated and you not having to do that anymore, you can just say, go get the records and then you figure it out is a lot of weight off of a patient's shoulders. Mm -hmm. Okay. So let's talk about your healthcare provider. So the medical side of this, your medical doctor side of it, each hospital or medical organization that takes dollars from the centers for Medicare and Medicaid services. So CMS, Mm -hmm. if they take dollars from them, they should be exchanging your healthcare data period because they have attested to CMS that they can ship your records around electronically. You should be able to get them in your portal with no problem. Unfortunately, if you have certain electronic health records, you can, they've got agreements between them that uh, you can share records back and forth. So let's say you went to hospital A and then you had a procedure done at hospital B, if hospital A and hospital B have the same electronic health record, they can ask for electronically without you being involved in it. All you have to do is just consent. And it's usually through your patient portal or through the app on your phone, you can automatically consent. So sometimes you'll see if you go into your patient portal, they'll say, Hey, do you want to share your records with other people in our network? You want to say yes. Because that will, that gives them permission and consent for you to exchange the medical information. That's a real kind of sticking point a lot for patients is is that unfortunately, because of the way that HIPAA is written, you have to consent to have your medical records exchanged. Now, this is very, very important because you as the patient are giving consent, you can direct that consent for you to move your records wherever it is. If you sign a consent and say, send my medical records to Dr. B, Dr. B does not need for you to sign a consent to accept those records. Okay. Right. Hospital right. A, you've signed it there and it should go with no problems. Right. But what happens is, is that if you want hospital B to send the records back to hospital A, you've got to sign a consent at hospital B. Mm-hmm. For them to send it back to hospital A. Right. Now it's there is new technology happening. They're trying to get your consent. So once you sign it once, it can be shipped electronically. So you don't have to sign it again. So that's coming down the road. It actually was passed in legislation and then that legislation got pulled back. 
So hopefully we'll see something later this year, which will help with that whole process. But for right now, because you're the patient and the statutes, the regulations and the law say that you're the only person who can really give permission for your records to be sent anywhere else. And I know that they don't make it easy. Mm-hmm. So that should be coming later this year. And yes. how do we, clearly it's not going to be vocalized. <laughs> No, I I mean, like we're not, no one's going to tell us (laughs) that it's happening. And then, so are we just supposed to ask every time we come in? Well, I really want to, you know, to be part of this health information exchange. I want consent to be on file or. Yeah. Yeah. So this is just kind of the languaging we need, especially if we're going in between these specialists. And a lot of organizations will ask you to sign a consent for you to be a part of the health information exchange. So you do want to sign that. Yeah. Okay. Well, that'll be helpful for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there any reason why you wouldn't want to share information? <laughs> Just out of curiosity. Um. Well, it's it depends on who you want to share information with, right? Mm-hmm. Do you want your information shared with, you know, your employer because mm-hmm. you're part of a wellness program? You have to think about who you want to, who you would like to share your information with. I will tell you this: if you pay for a medical a lot of people don't have the ability to do it, but if you pay out of pocket, like you pay 100% for the whole, Mm -hmm. whatever service Mm -hmm. that you got out of your pocket, they cannot exchange that information period unless you give them permission. Okay. So if you're paying for, like I said, let's say you go to see your physician, let's say you go for a checkup and that checkup costs $180 Mm -hmm. and you pay $180 cash. Mm -hmm. They can't share that piece of information with anybody until you release it. Right. And I can see where this would be an important piece where you might see a psychologist or a psychiatrist, right? I mean, your exactly. mental health needs and and just keeping that kind of more private. I understand that piece of it too. Each state has separate privacy rules. So you need to be aware of it. If you, especially if you look like on the border of a state with another state, each state has different privacy laws. So you need to be aware of what can and cannot be shared. Mm-hmm. So let's say if you're on the border of Ohio and, and Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Pittsburgh is, sits right on the border of the two states. Let's say you live in Ohio, but you want to get care in Pennsylvania. You will fall under the rules of disclosure and the rules of privacy for the state of Pennsylvania not the state that you live in. So you need to be very careful because every state has different privacy rules saying, you know, what you can share and what you can't share. For example, the three big, we call these hyper-protected information. It's generally HIV status, substance abuse status or notes, substance abuse notes and psychotherapy notes. Those are super protected. And that means that HIPAA has a certain amount of privacy, but the state's have stricter laws. And the way that the rules are written is, is that whatever is the strictest, so that would be the states are the rules that you have to abide by. Right. So just to let you know, and it, it is very important that, like I said, if you, if you're between two states, so in the state of Pennsylvania, like sexual health history, you're, you're deemed an adult at 14, you can't share, but if you live on the border of Pennsylvania, New York, New York is 12. Interesting. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, I don't know why it's so complicated, but it's right. complicated. But uh, just to be aware, but there are these super protected classes of data and information. Right. Okay. That's that's actually really fantastic to know. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. When you're talking about healthcare leaders, who who's involved in that 
decision-making process? Who are these people who you're coaching, right? Because that's what you do. You you coach these healthcare leaders to mm-hmm. make it kind of a broader experience for everyone, including the patients. So mm-hmm. I'd love to know who else is on that list. Ah, so generally I work with those that are, are heading up innovations in hospitals. So people who are looking at the data and trying to understand how to best serve patients. I work in the technology portion of it. I'm I'm what's called a health informaticist. I understand like the clinical side and, and the healthcare payer side of how to design certain plans and, you know, how do you roll that out and the data behind it. So I generally speak to leaders that oversee the IT pieces, leaders that oversee the clinical pieces, so physicians and those that work in the health plan, the actuaries, um, working with them to trend data that sort of thing. So it's all a 360 degree view because I have that. And I also do work with leaders on health information exchange as well. So how do I get that into my hospital and how do I make sure that the records that are in this health, like we're connected to the right health information exchange, that the records do flow in our particular region so that if I'm a snowbird and I go to Florida, Mm -hmm. you know, from Michigan, that my records also travel with me. Yeah. And I don't have to carry them. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Like in the olden days. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Or maybe the new in days. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And things are changing or they're actually they reverting, right? To the way that, that worked before. I know that I, I think I heard an interview with you where you were talking about innovation in the way that maybe we have patients that can't leave their homes for whatever reason. I mean, yep. especially now, right? They're, they're compromised and, and, you were talking about maybe reinstituting something like a home health visit that that isn't for someone who's you know yeah. dying necessarily that they're not on hospice it's more like they just can't get out of their home because of whatever reason right it could be financial it could be transportation needs do you yeah. see that happening do you see that kind of coming up in the future Yes, 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 yes. I'm so glad that that you asked me about this because I was just on a call with somebody that we were talking about. I know Mayo is trying to get the old, okay, this is a way throwback for you out there, the old Marcus Walby model. Mm -hmm. So, which means that you have a doctor who comes to your house Mm -hmm. and actually, you know, examines you for depending on your condition, depending on um, what you need. Also, with the advent of COVID, telehealth became, you know, a very, accepted way to conduct medicine. And we don't see it going back. CMS, again, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services pay for a lot of these services. And for a long time, they wouldn't pay for services using telehealth, but they opened it up during COVID. And the response was so great that, you know, they're going back and they're saying, we think we're going to leave it like this. Mm -hmm. So your doctor can get reimbursed for seeing you there because, you know, sometimes, and I've had this happen, you know, when my children were little, you get one with a cold and all they do is pass it around back and forth. And do I really need to schlep all three kids to the doctor? Totally. (laughs) No, you know, so that is coming this whole trend of kind of getting care back into the home is starting. There's another initiative in several different like leading health systems across the country that are doing things like, you know, once you've had an operation, you can recoup at home rather than in the hospital Mm -hmm. and they have people to come by monitor and they can set you up. So that's just like amazing for Mm -hmm. probably the last five years, they've been taking care of like Medicare patients, like having a nurse come out your home and do your annual wellness visit. If you can 
can't actually make it to the, to the hospital because, you know, I don't have somebody to drive me or, mm-hmm. you know, the weather's bad, or, you know, maybe I'm agoraphobic. I just mm-hmm. can't get there. I don't have family support to do that. So right. um, these types of services are are coming back because, I think as the world gets flat, we understand that we can't treat everybody the same. We have to be able to do some individualized services and treatments right? for so, patients and their families. Yeah. I'm thinking about, of course, the alopecia experience, the alopecia appointments, because right now with telehealth, I, I'm hearing a lot of children, especially are being diagnosed by a telehealth appointment, which is mm-hmm. to me a little bit of a disservice because it's, I mean, yay, it's great, but they're still waiting, you know, that the 45, 60 days to have a telehealth visit. But mm-hmm. from the point that you made the appointment to the point that your actual appointment comes along, you could actually be completely bald. And so the mm-hmm. immediacy of an appointment is really important. How, you know, just starting from the top, how do I convey that as a parent or as an individual who's losing their hair to someone who picks up the phone? Because that is for me where it starts. You know, somebody is saying, yes, we're going to fit you into this time slot, but it's not until here. And then you can say, you know, really, and maybe it's about seeing that PA first, right? Or, or yeah. the nurse practitioner to get in earlier. Yeah. But yeah. So, so I think that that's, that's a huge disservice. And I, and I keep saying that word because it it really is, it's hard to, this is a life-changing diagnosis and to to do it over video is traumatic. I think for the parent and child, especially because they're like, oh yeah. And, you know, if you can't touch it, if you can't see it, if you can't um, understand the kind of loss that they have experienced, I think it's just, it shouldn't be done in that way. The first appointment. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, there's there's definitely a lack of providers, access and accessibility issues, most mm-hmm. definitely in healthcare when it comes to that. The experience itself, you know, that that first, I I would have to say that, you know, I don't know. Wow, like that's a lot. I and I'm sorry, but like just to think that somebody's going to give you news that like over a screen is mm-hmm. hard, mm-hmm. right? So I I. Sometimes you do have to wait and sometimes there just isn't, there just aren't enough people and aren't enough times. One thing that I've noticed is that many hospitals and hospital systems have patient advocacy boards. Mm-hmm. So you can go to them and speak to them about, you know, the experience of a patient that has alopecia. You know, like, you know, it's taking us so long to get these appointments. Is there anything that we can do? You can also serve on those if you'd like to give the patient's voice to the hospital system. A lot of times, you know, it's the way that it's always been done. Mm-hmm. And there's not a whole lot of innovation in how we deliver healthcare. Right. And having these patient advisory boards is so crucial to health systems and and to the people that they serve because it's the voice of the patient. And that is something that has been missing in medicine mm-hmm. for a very, very, very long time. Right. It depends on, you can probably look it up or just ask, you can go to your patient access representative and see if there's a patient experience officer and how you can get involved because it really is sort of a grassroots. If you want to have something that's like there, a, a, a forum for patient voices so that the hospital administration and the boards hear what's happening mm-hmm. at the, you know what I mean? Like in mm-hmm. the weeds, that's yeah. what you need to do because a lot of times it doesn't translate. Right. 
unless right. uh, the patient voice gets heard. And, and it really is a little bit about the activism, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you want change. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more off air yes. about that for sure. Awesome. So in the future, this year in 2022, I think we have Mm -hmm. a lot to look forward to as patients. And I love the advice that you gave us, you know, go in with information. I often hear from parents, they're like, well, I'm, you know, I've waited for this dermatology appointment for months and we're finally getting in. What questions should I ask? And I'm like, oh, wow. You know, (laughs) this is really late (laughs) to be asking this question. (laughs) So yeah, getting that information of avenues to try and making the most of those seven to 12 minutes and even hopefully longer with, with the dermatologist. But I think that you've given us so much to go on today and I so appreciate all of it. Oh, thank you so much. And just like one last thing, yeah. because I know how hard it is to remember, like if something's been going on for three months for me to remember, use your cell phone and take voice notes mm-hmm. when something strikes you, because the doctor is going to say, well, how many times did it happen over this? You know, how many times did it happen? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times we get caught with like, oh, I don't know, you know, yeah. but using your phone to record sometimes really helps, helps you prepare right. for for that visit. And I've done it, like mm-hmm. taking notes for myself. Yeah. I've gone in for my year for like just my wellness visit after a year, there's things mm-hmm. I forget. Yeah. And that, you know, at one time are bothersome and then they go away and all of a sudden they come back. I don't know, like three days after I've gone. <laughs> of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> so yes, definitely. But I have so thoroughly enjoyed being here. It's a complicated subject. I hope that, you know, that, that your audience has got gotten something good out of it. I would love to come back and talk to you as more legislation comes out and the world starts to change. Mm-hmm. And yes, let's definitely talk offline about creating patient advocacy boards or patient access boards that they come by a whole slew of different names, but I've built those particular boards before in the past. And I would just love to be able to talk about it, give you some resources and um, really just as I hope, like, like I said, before we came on live that um, I hope that I've been able to serve your audience well. Oh, you absolutely have. And I appreciate that. And where can people go when they're looking for you to maybe find out some more information about what we talked about today? Sure. So you can reach me on my website, which is www.teresayunkin.com. Awesome. And you're on social media as well, right? Uh, Yes. You can find me on LinkedIn, on Instagram, and on Facebook as at Real Smart Method. Awesome. And I'll have all of those in the show notes for people to contact you and to look at what's going on and hopefully, you know, to be able to see the innovation that's going on throughout this year. I just want to thank you again, Teresa, for being here with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Alopecia Life. Check out the show notes for all the resources Teresa has provided informing us about what has been put in place since the beginning of the year, along with what is coming up. If you have additional questions about what we talked about today, her contact information is here too. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Join our Alopecia Life Facebook group and find out more information at headonlifecoaching.com. The information on this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment and is meant for general information purposes only. If you're enjoying these episodes and finding the tips helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to and download podcasts.